Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. We are in Las Vegas, Nevada at Freedom Fest, a massive gathering of constitutional conservatives and libertarians. And I want to challenge something that you've heard a thousand times. Libertarians are awesome, but they just can't win elected office. You're about to meet the most important elected libertarian, a county supervisor. Is that what he is? County supervisor, Jeff Hewitt. He's awesome. And he's going to surprise you because he's going to talk about how practical implementing liberty actually is. Jeff, good to be with you. Good to be with you. Great. It's great to be here, man. Yeah. Or I should call you Riverside County Supervisor Jeff Hewitt. Well, if... If you wanted to be really official and you're trying to get something out of me, I that's probably the term. That you yeah, I want, I want like a, a sewage contract or something from you. Well, that's the problem. Um, I was born with without the ability to want really nice things, and uh, I tend to really have to work for them. And if there's any kind of bias shown, then I couldn't wash that off yeah. in the shower yeah. a thousand times. Well, I'm, a, I'm being a bit of a fanboy right now because mm -hmm. I read in the LA Times just this morning that you are the most important elected libertarian in the history of the universe. And I'm putting a few words in their mouth, but in terms of the people you represent and, and uh, the power that you have, you are, you are the big libertarian right now. Well, I would say yes in one respect that uh, libertarians tend to be less successful most of the time than the other two parties when they're running. However, my, my office is, is big in influence. I don't like to use the word power because that you know, gives a different uh, connotation, but there's a lot of influence over people's lives, which we wanna do to actually affect change and go in the right direction. Uh, with 500,000 people in my district and two and a half million in the county, it's, it, I believe it is the largest that any you know, overtly libertarian person has been sitting in. So, yes. And, and you're sort of a you're sort of a black swan for the people watching this this video podcast because they've been told again and again and again that libertarianism is great. But come on, libertarians don't win anything. Um, you appear to be living, breathing proof that that's not actually true. Well, so like I say, I'm not the sh sharpest knife in the drawer or whatever, you know, the the brightest bulb in that whatever. But, but I do learn, and when I see in, in, in 2014, I ran as a libertarian for the state senate, and I got 6.5% of the vote as a libertarian running against four other people. And in 2016, I ran for the state assembly, and I got 7.5%. So I'm thinking, okay, every two years if I get 1%, and I figured it out, and I was going to have to be like 173 before I actually won a race. So I, I changed my course. And unfortunately, most libertarians think that that's great. Oh, wow, I got 6.5%, I got 7.5%. You're still losing. You're not affecting any change. Right, right. Um, most libertarians start their political careers by running for president. Yes. Or Senate. And or... we call those vanity races. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, the, that's what I want to dig into. But I'd love to hear a little bit about, about, your, about your history and your community and tell people how you worked your way up to the ability to actually impact policy change. But before we do any of that, we have to do something really important, which is have a beer. Oh, 
because this is a drinking show. We believe that, that beer is the ultimate metaphor for freedom and entrepreneurship and creativity. And I apologize. I have a Colorado beer. Ooh. Not a, not a, uh, I just, I was just in Colorado. Weldworks Juicy Bits. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, New England style IPA. Um, it has been tested by me. Uh, this was a six pack at one point, but there's only two left. Okay. So. All right. Oh, shoot. I thought it was going to be a drinking game or something. You said, okay. So well, that's, every, that's every fine. time we say non aggression principle, we have to chuck. Here is to more success and more freedom for everybody. Cheers. Oh, wow. That's good. So we're at, um, we're at Freedom Fest. Right. And this is a gathering of, of uh, liberty conservatives, libertarians, big L, small L. Uh, people that just are turned off by politics as usual. And, and you'll, we'll both be speaking on this, but um, I, I think my audience um, would love to hear a little bit of your, of your history and you know, your, 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 your career as, as a pool builder that led to uh, local political activism, solving problems. Uh, give us a little bit of that. Okay, so you know, my, my association with politics didn't really well it's, I suppose it started when I was a small child and I was watching in black and white on the TV and uh, it was one of the first presidential debates I believe it was uh, Kennedy against Nixon yeah and my folks were Republicans so obviously you root for I was rooting for Nixon just because my folks were Republican but I remember thinking how interesting that was and it was kind of neat that these two people were debating back and forth and you know so now this flash forward to where I go off to college to San Diego State and in 72 I was 19 years old and the first libertarian ran John Hospers and I didn't want to vote for Nixon coincidentally he was actually running for I believe re-election at the time or something yeah and against McGovern and I read this the ballot statement for this libertarian and I said wow they can't have a that can't be a real party that's just, that's like cool. You know, they, really? Yeah. So I've been a registered libertarian all my life. Yeah. But I didn't get, you know, so life gets in the way. And I went on uh, to fail miserably in college uh, because I met a girl that actually liked me and we got married and had a couple of kids. And I started digging swimming pools. And I was really good at it. And for decades, I did eventually go back in a slow period in a recession and get a degree in biology because my mother said I'd get new golf clubs. So that's as good a reason for getting your degree as anything is. But I, in this time, there was something that happened to me. I basically, I basically had three decades of people telling me how good I was at what I did. I was a very good bobcat pool digger and I was a very hard worker. What that did was gave me the single most important element of what makes me successful. I had confidence. It didn't matter who I was or anything else. I'd already attained rock star status one backyard at a time over two or three decades. You see? So that, that is what basically gets you to a certain point. Now, in 2004... I was asked to be on a planning commission. I'd never go, served in the military or anything else, and I thought this is a way I can kind of help my community. Didn't pay anything. In those six years, I rose to be, in, in about four years, I was the, um, the chairman of the planning commission. 
And in 2010, there was a city councilman of this small city of Calamesa that said, hey, Jeff, I'm not going to run again. I've, I've done one term. I can't stand it, but I think you'd be a great, and I'll run your campaign. He was hardcore Democrat, really active in the party. He caught a lot of crap because people knew I was a libertarian. And, and they said, what are, you, what are you backing this libertarian for? You're a Democrat. And he goes, I like Jeff's ideas. This is a nonpartisan office. I got elected. And in, I served two terms, the last three of which I was mayor. And I did something very extraordinary. When I got in, I said, oh, right, I'm a libertarian. I'm in elected office. I'm going to change the world. I remember that in 2010. And then I realized, ooh, the, the people on the other sides of me, they're not libertarians. I think there was two Democrats and two Republicans at the time. And I just started listening and learning. And I, 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 I made friends. And I built up trust. And I would do my, you know, yeah, I'm a libertarian. I'm voting no on that, you know, just to keep my credentials. But what I was doing was building a foundation for what in a few years would become extremely important. And that was when Cal Fire, which is the monopoly of state fire in very heavily union, very powerful, they were going to raise our rates by making us add a third firefighter on our one engine, you know, in three shifts. That would have cost us another $750,000 a year. And we were only a $5.5 million budget combined. I said, this will kill us. We can't, that, that's going to run us over. And, and Cal Fire said, you find the money, it's not our problem. So I said, what else can we do? I started looking. And everybody told me, Jeff, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. Nobody, everybody knows you don't take on fire. They're the heroes. And I kept thinking, what? This is crazy. No, I'm not going to go ask by all these elderly people living in trailer parks and stuff to raise their taxes somehow, to overpay somebody that we don't need. And so I set out on a mission. And a year and a half, the hardest thing I ever accomplished, even harder than winning this race that I'm in now, was forming my own fire department, kicking Cal Fire out, in-house, non-union, and 401k pensions. I'm saving that city a million dollars a year now and untold amounts down the road on pensions. You know, what's interesting about that story is, um, you know, it, it, it was your libertarian moment because you have to be a little bit crazy to take on big fire, the unions, the, the public sector, all of that stuff. And, and you're in California where these, these guys they rule, supreme, they yeah. rule the roost. Um, and they didn't like it at all. But, but the argument that you're making here is quite practical. There's, there's, a, there's a more efficient, more effective way to do this if we essentially do it ourselves. And the, the more important thing from that story is, again, I can't do anything by myself. It's the team that I built, the team that I built, not only on the council, but staff. The hardest one to bring over was my city council. I mean, I mean my city manager, Bonnie Johnson, who had been at three or four different cities. She says, Jeff, you don't understand. This is so hard to do. And I said, you want me to raise taxes? She goes, no, then we have to do this. And when I finally convinced her, and there were wrenches. I mean, when I write my book, it's going to be a bestseller. The things that the unions and the big fire chiefs threw at us, and every time, because I'd done thousands of pools, and every pool has all kinds of challenges, and I finished every one. No, I was, this was great. This was, and my job as mayor was more bringing everybody in when it looked like they finally had us on something. I'd say, Okay, guys, 
And it was just like Denzel Washington and Remember the Titans. You become a cheerleader. You become somebody that inspires others. When it happened on midnight of December 31st, where there, it was a really weird thing, very quiet. Cal Fire drove their truck out with their firefighters, and we drove our brand new, you know, shiny new engine in with our four. I mean, we have staffing of four now, not two or three. We have four because it's so much more efficient. And that was a, that was a sense of pride in all of us. And I didn't make myself a hero. I made our entire council a hero. Yeah. And today, the city of Placentia now, doing the same thing, breaking away from Orange County Fire Authority. They came out to our city when I was still mayor and said, we're not worthy. How did you do this? The city of Canyon Lake is also doing that. I mean, this started, it started a revolution. And so you don't have to be an elected in a big office. You just have to make the best of the moment you get. And if you're a libertarian, really good things might happen. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's dig into that a little bit because you've, you've, you've made it very clear um, in your strategy in elected office and your strategy of governing that this is a bottom-up thing. You, you need to focus on things that actually matter to people. You need to focus on elections where you can actually win office. Talk a little bit about that because I, I feel like we as libertarians don't do a very good job of, of sort of explaining the beautiful process by which you know people in communities and neighbors, they, they come together and they just start solving problems and no one told them to do it, but that's just how it happens. That's, that's the entire libertarian argument, but we never make it that way. Well, so uh, this tower we're sitting in right now, we're 26 stories up. They didn't build this from the top down. They had to build a foundation. They had to get down and dig in the dirt and pour all the footings and everything. Everybody that wants to be in elected office, don't go from the top down. Build your foundation, get in there learn. And, and, and again, I've always said it's easy to get elected. It's hard to govern. So you do your work, pick the right race, get elected. Now we'll find out if you're worth your salt. I can't predict who's going to be good or bad. I just happen to be patient enough, but to act on and very diligent enough to get some things done. And the things I learned as being not only a, a planning commissioner and a city councilman, they translate right over to the job I have now, which just has three more zeros on everything in the budget, in my employees, everything else. That's what you, it's, it's a learning process. And, and I love libertarians, and I think we are the best hope for saving this planet in all kinds of ways. But we got to pull our head out of the sand. And we got to quit thinking that, God, all we have to do is win the presidency and everybody's going to, no. People want something different right now. But you have to earn their business. This beer right here, this beer is not going to get any business unless it delivers it. It's very flavorful. It's got things that are worthy of our buying. We're the Libertarian Party has to be the same way as this beer. We have to have an attractive, well, okay, two out of three is not bad, but we have to have an attractive package. But inside, we got to deliver something of value. And the Libertarian Party has been remiss in doing that. And I'm trying to figure it out on my own. And, and having, and I'll tell you a little bit uh, further on, on how you use the advantages that libertarians have innately and, and quit, you know, uh, ignoring the obvious things that we should be doing, much like the other two parties. So you took on the, uh, the uh, fire workers 
California Government Union. I don't know what they called. 2881. It's, uh, yeah. California firefighters and you know it, it sounds like it's a message of that would come right out of an Ayn Rand novel but I'm guessing that during that whole conversation with with your colleagues and your 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 opponents and your constituents you you never quoted a libertarian novel and you probably never quoted Ludwig von Mises or the non-aggression principle um, tell me I'm wrong. I don't hear you quoting Austrian economists very well, often. Well, first of all, I can't quote. I think the other day in my panel, I quoted Rodney King, Can't We All Get Along? So that's about my level of expertise. Um, I've never read one page of Ayn Rand. I think I know the story. Somebody told it to me. I haven't even seen the movie. Um, we, ha- we have several colleagues filming this that are, that are shaking their heads. Yes, <laughs> we, we judge people like you, but, but I'm ecumenical as well. So we're going to let this conversation continue. Okay, so, so I I think I if you know I'm really good at trivia tests. So if you said name three Austrian economists, I think there's a von Mises guy, a Hayek, and a, well, Bastiak I think was French or something. So I you know, but that, that's about my level. French Austrian. I mean, I look at. I don't, I don't find the things I need there. Right. I I've had my own business for thirty or forty years. I don't need Austrian economics to know what works and what people want. Do you understand that? Yeah. You get that through life. And each one of those economists had some, hopefully, life experiences that brought them to those conclusions. But I'm not saying that that's good or bad. If you Some people get inspired by those. That's great. And they call themselves libertarians. Yeah. But if we really want to change things in the political level, we have to put ourselves in those positions of power. Yeah. In order to do that, we have to relate to the very people they're going to give their trust to us and say, okay, you got four years, give it a try. I wanted to come back to the firefighters thing for one minute before I get too far away from it. To show you the irony of me winning this office, county supervisor of Riverside, I am now one of five people that are the boss of the largest, the largest uh, fire department that uses Cal Fire in the state. We have 94 stations and 1,600 firefighters now. How do you think they feel now? and the way they treated me. It's great to be a libertarian in office, and people don't realize how much you can actually get accomplished. But you don't do things, you never get back at people or anything else. You always try to do what you think is best for your constituents. And if you stick to, to libertarian principles, oh my goodness, we, we haven't seen anything yet. Let's talk a little bit about about the race itself, because you know the experts didn't think you would win. Uh, your Republican opponent outspent you two to one, and it was all um, public sector union money. A lot of it was. A lot yes. of it was. Um, so you you sort of broke the the rules of politics because everyone expects the the big guy, the well funded guy, the guy with the powerful interest groups behind him to win. And yet, you know, people say you eked out a victory, but it was four points, which is not, that's not eking in politics. That's, no. That's winning. No, it was a solid victory, but uh, it just took a long time to get there. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, so I had two secret weapons. I had two secret weapons. The first one is that I, I always win when I really want to win. I, I've never lost at Boggle. I don't think I've ever lost at Monopoly in the game. I'm very competitive. Remind me not to play you because... Well, no, 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 no. Hey, remember, losing is, is wisdom. That's where you get wisdom. So there's nothing wrong with failure. But what I'm saying is I have, 
I'm driven. I have worked till I have no calories left. I've been at 10 o'clock at night where I've still got to load up the tractor, pull down this big, you know, tailgate, put ramps up there and find the energy to drive home. That, that very few people have that to the degree I have. But my second secret weapon is, is, is a libertarian story that should be told to everyone. There's a gentleman who I met five years ago who in the executive committee of the state party of the Libertarian Party, we met each other and we couldn't stand each other. We were both alpha males. We wanted to dominate that body. And we probably nearly killed each other several times. But somewhere, I don't know where it happened, but we realized that we kind of wanted the same thing for the world. So we would put aside our, I'm better than you, or you're better than me, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're fat, whatever. And we started working together. When I was having problems with the first person I picked to be my campaign manager, I called up my friend Boomer, Boomer Shannon. And Boomer said, look, I'm working on a bunch of campaigns. I'll give you two days a week for so much an hour. He came over within the first week or two. He says, wait, you have this story about this fire department and you got Stephen Greenhut from um, the K Street. I get the K Street uh, Institute. J Street. R Street. R Street, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. R Street Institute. And, and he wants to write an article and you haven't done that? Get your ass doing that right now. Get it done. I wrote that, got it off to Stephen. Boom. It made Southern California News Group, 11 Southern California Papers. Went to Reason two days later, Reason Magazine. Now I had something to fundraise with. I had a relationship with Chris Roofer, one of the largest uh, libertarian donors, and he had told me one time when I went up to see Ben Swan up in Sacramento, there's a few of us, they invited us up. I was, I was actually there. Were you there yeah. at that one? Yeah. Remember when we went to that steak? Yep. That steak? Yep, yep. Well, I sat next to, to, to Chris, and Chris said, you know, Jeff, and he was thinking I was gonna run for a state, legislative state or something. He says, if you go ahead and get your ducks in a row or something, somebody will do a pack for you and I'll give you whatever it needs to get over there. You know, it's like, wow, that's kind of cool. Well, it turns out with this race for county supervisor, there are no limits. You don't have to form a pack. So I kind of held him to his word. Yeah. But nevertheless, Chris is not a dumb guy. He's not a dumb, he didn't become a self-made billionaire because he's dumb. So what I did is um, I called him up and he said, I want, I want a, a white paper, seven, or, seven to 10 pages or whatever. Give me a white paper of what you're gonna do. Because he knew I was gonna do a big ask. So we had a, a state executive committee meeting. My wife's on the executive committee still. And we were up in Sacramento and we set it up and I went to dinner with he and his wife and me and my, my wife. And for three hours, Chris went ahead and uh, he's very, very passionate a little bit eccentric on some of his stuff, but very passionate about libertarian views. And he started arguing with my wife. And I said, no, Chris, you're wrong. So I started getting into it with Chris. And part of my brain's going, wait a minute, you're going to ask this guy for a lot of money. And yet the other side goes, if he's going to put money on a horse, he wants one that's going to have a spine. And so we were done. We had a great dinner. Um, he says, I gave him the white paper. He says, Jeff, I'll call you. Um, you know, sun, Sunday night. That was Saturday night. He says, Sunday night or Monday, I'll give you a call. See what I can do. I get home Sunday night. I get this call, and it was Chris. He asked me, I can't remember what the questions were, but two very difficult questions. 
just very difficult ones. And I answered them. And he said, hey, look, um, tomorrow morning I'm cutting a check for 100 grand. It'll be in the mail. So, you know, I didn't know if I was going to get 10, 15, 20, whatever. But I called up my campaign manager, Boomer Shannon. I said, he's cutting us a check for $100,000. The only person that really thought I was going to win, who somehow, using Ginsu mind tricks, convinced me that I was going to win, was Boomer Shannon. And he said, we're going to win this race now. Because that was the seed money ready to go. He knew that if our opponent outraised us less than three to one, we had a real good chance of winning. Let's talk, let's talk about specifically what, what you financed with that, that seed capital because the, the way that you and Boomer constructed this was, was very bottom-up, mm-hmm. back to the theme, very door-to-door, very personal relationships. Uh, you were soliciting votes one at a time, um, and hard work trumps a lot of money. It has been my experience in politics, and you, you, you ended up proving the point. Well, so, you know, the obvious things, you're going to get a few signs. Uh, signs don't necessarily win it for you, but you kind of have to put them out there. Um, we wanted to do direct mail uh, flyers or whatever. Those the, the direct mail pieces, very expensive. But then usually you go, okay, your ground game. We're going to go out and we're going to get a bunch of volunteers and everybody's going, hey, we love Jeff. We're going to go knock on doors and sell him. I'm here to tell you that volunteers are fine, but they don't do it. You have to get, you have to get professional people that can go out and knock on doors and convey a libertarian message. And if you do that, that's the single most, but again, that's, so what I did is I shopped around, I found where I could get, I was going to get nine, we figured we needed nine different people. They came from all over the United States. We paid $1,800 in the primary for 30 days. And it was, I believe, uh, we had to get gas cards for them and Airbnbs to stay. They used their own cars. And you know what? That was the best thing we did because they were all libertarians. And they'd never worked for a real libertarian. They'd worked for liberty-leaning Republicans or this or that. Yeah. So going into this, okay, so that's part of it. But it's a lot more complicated to do it right. To do it right, you have to have somebody that can run the troops. Here again is Boomer Shannon's experience running all these you know, uh, ballot measures and different campaigns. He was used to running a crew. So every morning, I would come in, we'd talk to the troops, we'd go over what had happened, they would share how they dealt with each and every different you know, interaction at the door. There had been hit pieces come out on me. I mean, my opponent was as dirty as you get. I mean, I have been Kavanaugh, totally. And it's not as painful as you think. Because hmm. most people are human. They just, yeah, guys, you know, he's been in business. Of course, he's got these, that, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? When those guys went out, they were getting 92% conversion rate on everybody that opened the door. And all kinds of yard signs. Yard signs are a lot better than just regular signs. Yeah. People say, oh, that, he's committed. Yeah. So that was the start of it. And then we got some uh, polling. We had a little bit of money through a good libertarian uh, friend of ours that did real accurate polling. And we, we could see we're, we're, kinda, we're, we're in there. We're kind of moving up. And uh, at the end of the day, coming down to, to the elections, 
I was on the corner waving, and there's sign wavers out there at the busiest corners in my district. Radio, I spent at least 14 hours in six months on the radio. But we did have, okay, so we have a station out there in California called the KFI. It's 50,000 watts. It has 1 million listeners for the John and Ken show. It's the second largest radio audience in the United States, largest on the West Coast. Many of those listeners were in my district. I had sent emails about what I'd done. I knew they hated government pensions and all that. And finally, right before the uh, primary, about two weeks, I believe it was, their, their producer uh, sent me an email back and says, hey, we, we do an eight minutes, you know. So I got on there. I spoke for eight minutes. John has never let anybody speak without breaking in for eight minutes. And he carried me over for a second piece. And so I did the second piece. And right before when I knew that I was coming off, he said, oh, by the way, I'm running for the fifth district supervisor. Oh, my God. They say, you are? Because, see, I, I waited to launch it just at the right time. And they go, well, we're we're endorsing you. You're going to be on our website, blah, blah, blah. And they even after that, the days after that, they'd come on at noon and go, don't forget to vote for Jeff Hewitt. That was fifty to $75,000 worth of advertising for free. So, so you actually ran on pension reform. Is that? Pension reform was probably our biggest of our three. We were talking about. Because you, know, you hadn't taken on all the sacred cows. I mean, you, you were just pissed off the, the, the firemen's union. Let's, let's, let's go after pensions next. Well, so I figured that, you know, good publications like Reason and some, and some really, you know, some good, more libertarian-minded media people had put out that said, this is, the, you know, so some people were getting it already. So yeah. I wasn't the first one to do it. Yeah, yeah. But I was really probably the first politician that made that my main thing. It's one of those, you know, this is one of those issues like everybody in public policy understands that it's a completely unsustainable, it's a disaster and it means that that workers won't get the retirement savings that they're promised, but no one wants to touch it. Everyone's afraid to touch it because of sort of the iron rules of politics that you don't take on the public sector unions. Uh, But you had proven once already that that you you can actually come up with a reasonable solution that saves people money. Right. And you turned so you turned it into a populist issue almost. It, 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 I, I became the populist candidate in that respect. So, so after the primary, and I got in the top two, I was 0.7 percent behind the guy that I was going to run against, the former assemblyman, and I beat out a guy that was supposed to be in the top two, who had yeah. been the chief of staff for the former, and he had already raised over half a million himself and such. But I beat him by I think as much as like five percent or something. So. So we had another chance. So here's, here's, here's how bad it is when you're running for a year and, and, and winning this thing. And this is what I want to put across. I mean, you, you're going to take a year of your life and forget anything else because, and you have to outwork your opponents. So there was coming down about two or three weeks before the general election. I'd been out campaigning and everything. And I came home about one o'clock. I was going to rest up, get a few hours of sleep before I had to go to uh, some event in Moreno Valley where, you know, I'd have to get up and speak and shake and all this. And I sit down in my recliner and I go, oh gosh. In fact, I might've even thought about taking a beer. I don't know. There might've been a beer in my hand. Might've happened. And I get this phone call from Boomer Shannon, my campaign manager. He says, hey Jeff, I've got two people coming over. Uh, They'll be there in about 20 minutes. 
you're going to Anaheim. I go, why am I going to Anaheim? He goes, well, John and Ken are doing a remote feed down there at this body shop. You know, it's it's on Prop 6. And they were against the gas tax. I don't know if you heard about that. Sure. You know, but anyway, he says, you're going to go down there. You're going to crash their show. <laughs> so, okay, boss. You know, whatever you say. And I'm thinking, really? God, I was going to get maybe a beer and two or three hours of rest. I had to go to... So two of my fine team members, one really good fast driver, gets us down there by like two o'clock. And sure enough, the, the, the show's all set up. All this prop six stuff is out there. And I'm, I'm trying to look around. I'd never met the producer. I talked to him on the phone. I came on the show before and, and I'm looking for this Ray Lopez guy. And, and pretty soon I'm saying, you know, I don't know how we're going to get on. You know, it's all crowded. And then one of my, well, my number two guy, Paul Valandingham, he just puts one of my signs up, yells, sticks it up and goes, Jeff Hewitt's here, Jeff Hewitt's here. And, you know, I mean, somehow and then Ray Lopez comes out and I go, yeah, Ray, can you get me on today? Or, you know, no, you know, I think we're probably going to come up. Maybe we can get you on in a couple of days. And so Paul's t- talking to Boomer and we said, no, you get on right now. So I said, hey, do you have some time? You can move in there. He goes, you know, let me, yeah, oh yeah, we can fit you in there. So I get on there and I did another, I mean, and they treated me like a hero, a concrete hero. And it's great. You know, another $50,000 worth of free. Right. So we're driving back and we're in the car and Boomer gets on the phone talking to Paul and he goes, I can't believe you effing got on that show. We looked at each other, you son of a, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, he was whipping us, he was beating us, but even he was surprised that we accomplished it. Yeah. It's that kind of, sheer will that you have to do if you're going to win an election, especially being the underdog. And I don't know if libertarians know that they can do that if they just work hard. Let's talk about that because you're, you're now uh, very much a national figure within the libertarian party. Um, and you're, you're part of the libertarian national. Committee. I'm on the libertarian, uh, the LNC the Le- yeah. libertarian national. Committee. So it's never been a secret that you're, you're one of those real libertarians and I want to go back to the L.A. Times article um, and, and sort of read their, their lead. I, I quoted the article earlier. Recently elected Riverside County Supervisor Jess Hewitt just might be the strangest libertarian of them all, a politician capable of winning elections who could move the party from the fringes into the mainstream. Um, I think that's true. And my question for you is all of this, all of this sort of nuts and bolts grinded out get to the finish line, focus on things that are practical. Let's get earned media if we can't afford paid media. I don't see this coming out of libertarian candidates very often. Are you taking this model back to the party and applying that same bottom-up philosophy? I am. And, uh, you know, I'm really hopeful that, you know, we've had 47 years of a particular culture that wasn't particularly winning. And, Everybody thinks that we're so used to, you know, if everything goes right and we get in the right deal and, you know, Jupiter aligns with Mars, we might pull it off and we get a win. And then they think it's all over. That's when your work just begins. But why, why not do the same things that the other two parties do? Work hard, get out there, but keep a clean message, stay consistent. And when you get in there, even in a small elected local office, you can accomplish great things. I did. That was a small city. I made national news. But learn how, and this is the single biggest thing I can say for people that want to go in to elected office, whether libertarian or not, 
once you get in there, you need to build relationships with your colleagues. You're only one vote. Remember, I've always been on a planning commission of five, a city council of five, and now a county super, board of supervisors of five. I'm very comfortable with four other noses on the dais. But the minute I get on there, I start building a relationship. I want those other four people to be my best friend. I don't have to give up anything in my values or my principles, and I don't ask them to change theirs. See, that's a big difference. In fact, if they're principled, even if their principles are different than mine and they're passionate, we're going to get along great and we're going to do great things together because we're going to identify those things that we overlap on. This comes back to the time that I met Ralph Nader three days before I met Gary Johnson for the first time. Just totally back in 2014. I'm going, wow, I get to meet two former third-party presidential candidates. Gary, I love you, man, but... I liked Ralph Nader better when I met him because he's got people skills that came in and he said, Jeff, he goes, you're a libertarian and I'm a green and we're on this opposite ends of the spectrum. You and I need to work on the things that we overlap on like crony capitalism. I said, Ralph, you the man. I could call up Ralph today and we could work on something together, have a beer together and then let him go back to his commie socialist. I'm, I'm not, Ralph, I love you. But you know what I'm saying? He's These a, he's are the a way. Loving no, communist. and, and yeah, yeah but, but but the thing is, we it's not about winning arguments; it's about persuading people that are already your friends. Yeah, and when you do that, it's amazing. Remember, I spent a half a million dollars of other people's money in a year of my life to get this position. I'm one out of five votes. If I make a good ally and a friend on that board, I'll send them up to two votes. If I make a second friend, I can change the world. Remember that. Those are the formulas. Those are the things. Get in those local offices. Start doing it. Start learning. It's amazing. And you'll find out some people, I'm just not very good at that. That's fine. You're probably good at something else. But if you use, keep your libertarian values always right there. Those aren't going to change. And make your protest votes just to show that you're libertarian. But in the meantime, start people, start saving your constituents millions and millions of dollars. Get their life back in a, a freer style. And it, when you lay your head down to rest the last time that you do, whether you get hit by a bus or not, then you can look back and say, I did the best I could and I actually accomplished something. So you've seen, you've seen the same data that, that every aspiring third-party organizer, libertarian, green, fill in the blank. Um, young people seem to be uh, fleeing the two tribes, Team Red and Team Blue, uh, particularly in this this super hyper partisan identity politics environment, where where it seems like the two teams are primarily identified by who they hate on right. the other side, exactly. Um, and that puts um, you have argued that that puts libertarians in in the catbird seat. We we have a unifying um, set of values that that actually can be attractive to to particularly independents, but to to people that didn't even know that they were libertarians. T- tell me what that tell me what that message is. Okay, so the message is right here that yeah, we are in hyperpartisanship. You know, we're ripping each other's throat out over whether or not a, a president had an affair with a porn star. Who cares, right? You know, but it's still whatever your side does, that's evil. Whatever I side, you know, and so I, I sit back there and look at that. And again, I don't start out by calling both of them status or anything. You know, I, again, I'm going to become their friend. And when I say, you know, hey, I, I think look at. If, if we work on this over here and work on that, 
And, and you, you always do a positive message. Now, for young people, you know, the Libertarian Party actually embraces things like Uber. They embrace blockchain technology. They embrace SpaceX and all these things and, and tech in every way, AI, all these things. And we need to go ahead and not only start winning races, but we need to start branding ourselves as the party of the future. And the future is now. Mm-hmm. If it's not now, it's next month because it's moving at that speed. And, and so, you know, I usually start every speech that I give by saying, I'm a politician, I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of it because of my libertarian values. I know that I'll always work to keep as many of your, you know, uh, freedoms that I can and get back as many have been taken away. So you start out, you don't say I'm not a politician, you be proud of the fact that you're a libertarian politician. And I usually end every speech by saying, you know, with, with, with technology advancing at light speed right now, with newfound natural resources every day, and with people living longer, this world should be in the greatest renaissance of all time, of all time. And when you give a positive message and you get people buying into it, especially young people, this movement can go on to great things. You sound optimistic. I'm extremely optimistic. I won. Yeah. <laughs> I have every reason to. Yeah. And you got to spread that like it's a virus. It's a really good virus. Freedom and liberty and the, and, and the ideas of having the ability to make your own choices and fail in life. And I always push that. Success is not the big thing. When you take away the ability to fail, you've also taken away the ability to succeed. Let's go ahead and celebrate failure. Let's don't bring it into a culture like we have for 47 years with the Liberty Party. We're going to win. But let's celebrate the idea that we're the only political entity that thinks that the vast majority of mankind is inherently good because it follows that we can only have a free society if we think our neighbors are good enough to respect us. You can only be as free as what your neighbors will allow you. That's actually from Chris Roofer. But you, you see the points I'm making? We have a product that is about as sexy as you get. And yet, we're still making a lot of dumb choices and trying to be this and that. Start at that local level. Libertarians all over the United States can be doing this. And in a blink of an eye or two, two or three cycles, we are in charge and we're running this world like it should be. Love it. Okay. We got to get back to drinking beer. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.